Approximately one billion people around the world smoke tobacco-based cigarettes. That's a rough estimate, but probably relatively close to the actual number. And it's a high number, but not as high as it could have been. In most developed nations where people are spendiest with the most expendable cash to throw around on non-essentials, smoking is decreasing in popularity. So while a billion people was about 14.3% of the total human population in 2014, when a major study on the subject was done, it's only about 12.5% of the total population on the planet today. So there's a similar number of people smoking, but that number represents less of the overall human population. That number would be even smaller if it wasn't for increases in rates of cigarette smoking in highly populous and increasingly wealthy countries like China, which, based on a study using 2016 numbers, consumes nearly 42% of all pre-made and self-rolled cigarettes that are smoked each year, which adds up to just over 2,000 cigarettes per person per year. That is 2,350,500,000,000 cigarettes each year smoked by the 300 to 400 million people who are active smokers in China. That number is a little fluffy because the last available data indicated there were around 300 million smokers in China, but that was a half decade ago. And other research that's been done indicates that the number of smokers is growing fairly quickly, while existing smokers are less likely to quit in China than in most other countries. So even 400 million may be a conservative estimate. But either way, it's a massive demographic of people who are consuming an incredible portion, 42% of the world's tobacco output, on an annual basis. Part of the reason for this tobacco enthusiasm in China, it's purported, is that the Chinese government's tobacco product monopoly, is that the Chinese government's tobacco industry monopoly within the country brings in 7-9% to of the government's revenue each year. So just like lotteries and other arguably harmful products that can create negative incentives for the population within certain countries, the production and sale of tobacco products and the lax, bordering on non-existent enforcement of tobacco use laws within the country seem to be encouraging more use of a product that causes untold numbers of serious ailments from respiratory diseases to cancers. Interestingly, Alongside the overall decrease in tobacco use worldwide since the turn of the century, especially since the late 1990s, when many of the nail-in-the-coffin studies were released about the impact of tobacco on a person's health, and when the first serious legislation started to be marched out in European and North American countries in particular, there's also been a pronounced stratification of tobacco use, mostly dividing along economic lines. Which means, in practice, that in most countries, with just a few exceptions, it's people who are less wealthy, and especially people who are poorest, economically, who tend to smoke. Egypt is an exception here, as is Poland, but even there, the wealthiest members of society do not smoke as much as the less wealthy members. And the folks at the bottom of the economic pyramid are the most likely to have consistent smoking habits. How many cigarettes heavy smokers consume in a year varies wildly from place to place, with some countries' most addicted citizens only smoking an average of a few cigarettes a day, and others smoking fairly stunning quantities 
to the point where you have to assume they do very little each day except for smoke. In Andorra, for instance, a microstate tucked between France and Spain, the average cigarette consumption per year per person is 6,398.3. So that's the total number of cigarettes smoked each year divided by the number of people, which is relatively small, just over 76,000 people. So the total number of cigarettes consumed each year is small compared to other nations, but the amount per person is much bigger than any other country, and nearly 20% of deaths in Andorra are tied to tobacco use as a consequence. Of course, 20% isn't as high a death rate as you might think, and it's actually relatively small compared to some other parts of the world. Worldwide, there are about 7.1 million deaths each year that are attributed to tobacco use, most of them tied directly to smoking. About 6.3 million of those deaths are directly tied to smoking cigarettes or other types of tobacco, but some of them are attributed to the regular inhalation of secondhand smoke. That makes up about 884,000 of those deaths. In 55 countries, at least 20% of all deaths in males are attributable to smoking. And when we talk about deaths in this context, we're mostly talking about heart disease, cancer, stroke, and a slew of respiratory diseases that are caused or made fatal, rather than just dangerous, because the person who had them was a smoker. It's quite tricky to collect data of this kind as most tobacco-related effects can only be studied over the long term. You don't see a whole lot of permanent difference in a person's health after just a few weeks or months of smoking. But you do see the damage massively and unmistakably over the course of years. And the most significant and deadly effects only arrive after about a decade of use, most commonly. So the best data comes from 10-year or longer studies. And those are expensive and difficult to maintain in some parts of the world. Thus, a lot of what we're working with here are numbers that are several years old. That said, it'll be interesting to see what we learn about the generation that's coming of age today, when reliable numbers are collected a few years from now, indicating what census scale affects the overall decrease in smoking worldwide, except for in China and except for a few other countries like Indonesia and India, are experiencing at the moment. There's a decent chance that a lot of these numbers will plummet, or that we'll see the impact of these conditions that emerge or that are amplified by smoking, relegated to certain age groups, like those who are in their 30s who have slightly larger numbers than those in their 20s, but especially those who are aged 50 or older, as they are more likely to have started smoking before the current trends and current science were available, and their habits might have been established before the current socioeconomic trends slammed into place. Then again, part of the reduction in these numbers, at least for some age groups, might be the result of one habit replacing another, not the wholesale quitting of smoking things, but instead swapping in a cigarette-like thing for actual cigarettes. What I'd like to talk about today are e-cigarettes, vaping, and the contemporary panic that is arising based on early studies that have been done about this ostensibly healthier cigarette replacement. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. In 1927, an American scientist named Joseph Robinson applied for a patent for a medical device that was, quoting from the patent, quote, for holding medicinal compounds, which are electronically or otherwise heated to produce vapors for inhalation, end quote. 
Patent number US 1775947A was granted three years later, in 1930, though it doesn't seem that Robinson ever tried to make or sell such a device. He just had an idea and snagged a patent, which kept a competing would-be patenter from trying their own hand at making such a device in 1936. But beyond that, his idea didn't seem to make much difference to the world of technology before it expired in 1947. In 1965, another American inventor named Herbert Gilbert patented an idea he'd been working on for a few years prior for a, quote, smokeless, non-tobacco cigarette, end quote, that, quote, replaced burning tobacco and paper with heated, moist, flavored air, end quote. Gilbert created a prototype to shop it around to potential buyers and investors, but no one was interested. Smoking was all the rage at that moment in time, and Gilbert's invention didn't even contain nicotine so there was little incentive for smokers to incorporate it into their smoking habit. In subsequent years, several companies in the medical world and in the tobacco world worked on prototype devices meant to deliver vaporized liquids for various purposes. Though because of the technologies involved, most of these devices have remained either incredibly niche or were overshadowed by other options, other ways of achieving the same ends, until quite recently, in the early 2000s. A Chinese pharmaceutical researcher named Han Lick quit smoking after his father, who was, like him, a heavy smoker, died of lung cancer. He decided to try to develop a solution that would remove the dangers of tobacco from his habit by creating a device that would use a high-frequency piezoelectric ultrasound-emitting element to vaporize pressurized liquid that was part nicotine. So essentially, a device that would use sound to turn liquid into vapor, which, because of the method used, would make the vapor easy to inhale, like smoke. This, in his mind, was a far better option than the other heating-related alternatives, but it was difficult figuring out ways he might scale the device down to something small enough that people would actually use, something that was similar in scale to cigarettes, so that it wouldn't change people's rituals or habits, it would just make those rituals and habits less dangerous. He registered for a patent for this concept in 2003, and by 2004, the first e-cigarette, standing for electronic cigarette, hit the market. From there, e-cigarettes got popular in Europe and the United States, which helped goose-flagging sales in China, where the device had not been as popular as they were abroad. That overseas adoption, though, helped make the devices cool in their country of origin as well. These early devices, it should be noted, were generally disposable, and they used a different technology from most similar products today. Back then, e-cigarettes used ultrasonic atomizers to vaporize nicotine-containing liquids, while today, battery-powered heating elements are used, which heat the liquid solution to between 100 to 250 degrees Celsius, which is 212 to 482 degrees Fahrenheit, which in turn aerosolizes the liquid into an inhalable form. And by the way, an aerosol is different from a vapor. A vapor is the gas form of a particular substance, while an aerosol is a suspension of particles within a gas. Because e-cigarettes and so-called vaporizers are used to deliver suspensions of chemicals within a gas, not just a pure gas, the term vaporizer is a common misnomer, not an accurate label. Battery technology has also changed in the years since early e-cigarettes appeared on the market, which means that while early iterations used disposables, modern versions make use of rechargeable lithium-ion batteries, similar to those found in your phone, laptop, 
and pretty much every other contemporary portable electronic device. Despite the similarities in the components of modern e-cigarettes, however, a battery, a heating element, a microprocessor, a mouthpiece, and a cartridge, and in some cases some kind of LED light, there are a few different main species of these devices on the market. There's the quote-unquote SIGA-like style device, which looks a bit like a cigarette, hence the name, in some cases exactly like a cigarette, but usually the similarities are limited to the general size and proportion and shape. This style is generally either disposable after a certain number of uses, or it's rechargeable in terms of battery and in terms of accepting replaceable cartridges for the liquid it converts into an aerosol. There are also so-called tank models that are usually quite a bit bigger than SIGA-likes to make room for their refillable liquid tanks, and sometimes to allow for the addition of modular components so it has a refillable tank instead of a replaceable cartridge, and you can change up the style or add new technology to it along the way. Depending on what country you're in, and what aspect of the vaping world you're a part of, these devices will be called different things. Tank models, for instance, are often called mod devices, or advanced personal vaporizers, APVs, while SIGA-like varieties have evolved to take different shapes from their progenitors, while also coming in different voltages, being capable of aerosolizing different sorts of liquid, and charging in different ways. Early, first-generation e-SIG devices were simple cigarette copycats, while second-generation devices were more likely to be tank models. Third-generation devices added mods into the mix and included new voltage options, which gave the devices increased abilities in terms of add-ons and in terms of what kind of liquid it could work with. And fourth-generation devices introduced new intuitive controls for the user, alongside novel business models that allowed producers of these devices and the fluids they aerosolize to focus more on other things, other aspects of selling them, rather than just the tech behind them. This is where Juul enters the story. Or rather, this is where, initially at least, a company called Plume enters the story. Plume was founded in the United States in 2007 to produce and sell electronic vaporizers, and in 2010, they released the Plume Model 1, a vaporizer with a few upgrades over what was then currently on the market that the founders of the company used to garner attention and investment leading up to their development of another product called PAX, which they released in 2012, and which occupied a premium end of the market, selling for $250 and intended for loose-leaf tobacco, but also, importantly, compatible with smoking marijuana as well. The PAX did incredibly well, gaining the company a huge fan base. In 2015, a multinational conglomerate called Japan Tobacco International bought out the intellectual property rights for Plume's Model 2 device, including those associated with pods consumers would buy on top of it to top up the device. As part of that transaction, the founders of Plume bought back the stake that Japan Tobacco International had previously bought in the company, and then renamed the core company Pax Labs. Later that year, Pax Labs announced C-Round funding, so a later stage round of money that they'd gotten from investors, and they had set up distribution throughout the United States and Canada. They also, mid-2015, announced a new product in their lineup, the Juul, J-U-U-L. 
It took two years, but by 2017, Juul's market share had climbed from about 10% to nearly half of the total e-cigarette market in the United States. That same year, Juul was spun off into a separate company so that Pax Labs could focus on making loose-leaf vaporizers, and Juul could focus on its own thing. And Juul's own thing was part technology, part design, and part marketing. And the combination of those elements led to an investment round in mid-2018 that valued the company at $15 billion, followed by an investment later that year in December of 2018 by Altria, one of the biggest cigarette manufacturers in the world, which involved them buying up 35% of Juul for $12.8 billion, a sum that gave the company a new valuation of $38 billion. The technology component that led to Juul's rapid-fire success is primarily found in the replaceable pods that contain the consumable ingredient of the product. Like most so-called vaporizers, the Juul heats liquid contained in little cartridges that can be used up, discarded, and replaced with new cartridges, generally purchased in multi-pod packs, a pod being the name applied to Juul cartridges. Juul pods, though, unlike most other vaporizer pods, contain nicotine salts as its addictive ingredient, rather than free base nicotine. The distinction here is important enough that Juul patented its nicotine salt preparation, and it's distinct in that it apparently makes the experience more like smoking a cigarette than most e-cigarettes can achieve, as the nicotine peak arrives at around the same time as with a traditional cigarette within about five minutes. Each Juul pod contains about the same amount of nicotine as a pack of cigarettes, and is meant to provide around 200 puffs on the device. That amount of nicotine, which comes out to 59 milligrams per milliliter in the United States, and 20 milligrams per milliliter in the European Union, and which is substantially more than most other brands provide for a variety of reasons, it's also why the experience of a Juul is considered to be less harsh feeling than with other similar devices. And that, in turn, is thought to be part of why so many teenagers are using Juul devices, which I'll talk a bit more about in a moment. The design of the Juul is not entirely unlike that of other e-cigarettes on the market, but that's because many of them copied the aesthetic of the Juul, which looks a lot like a USB thumb drive, one of the longer stick models that was popular several years ago, but a simplified, somewhat beautiful streamlined version of that kind of thumb drive. This design sensibility has resulted in the Juul being called the iPhone of e-cigarettes by more than one reviewer, and has reportedly contributed to the device's appeal across genders. Some devices have a staggeringly high ratio of men to women in terms of users, but the Juul seems to appeal to just about everyone, visually at least. The Juul company has also been known to use polished photography featuring very young-looking models splashed across colorful, geometric backgrounds to sell their product. And their packaging is relatively high-end feeling, like opening up a flagship model smartphone or high-end earbuds, which has contributed yet more to the popularity and desirability of the product, but also opened them up to allegations that the company has been intentionally marketing their wares to teens which, depending on the age of those teens, is illegal in a large number of countries around the world. A study in late 2018 found that 9.5% of U.S.-based teenagers aged 15 to 17 are currently Juul users, and 11% of those aged 18 to 21 
are users. That same study found that teenagers aged 15 to 17 are 16 times more likely to be Juul customers than 25 to 34-year-olds, which is interesting considering that cigarettes are more popular in that latter age demographic. That's the most popular demographic out of all the people younger than 50, anyway. And adding weight to that study was another that indicated 20% of middle school and high school students aged 12 to 17 have seen jewels used in school, which is not particularly useful in terms of numbers, but is useful in terms of gauging brand awareness and the pervasiveness of this brand within certain age demographics and locations inside schools. As I mentioned in the intro, smoking numbers have been dropping precipitously, especially in wealthier countries, for the past few decades, and this is particularly true of younger generations. I'm 34 years old myself, and I grew up at the tail end of socially acceptable smoking in the United States. And I remember distinctly when it was no longer okay to smoke in public places. You now have to find specialized businesses if you want to smoke at restaurants or bars in some cases today. And for many people, those places are generally avoided by non-smokers. Nobody wants to go home smelling like smoke. Things have turned in that way. People in my age demographic grew up with an understanding that these things are dangerous. And most of us know people who are older and who have had their health immensely, deleteriously impacted by these products. Whether we're talking about smokable tobacco products or smokeless products like chewing tobacco. Even smokers in my age group tend to understand that what they're doing is very bad for them, even if they then justify the habit in some way. The big concern amongst health professionals at the moment, though, is that because these little jewel devices are so well-branded, are so clearly aimed at younger audiences, with their aesthetics and language, but also their huge ad spending on Instagram and other more youthfully trafficked networks, including, and I'm not making this up, billboards right outside of high schools, and because the product itself delivers relatively high doses of nicotine in a form that makes that intake seem like nothing. It would feel far harsher to smoke a pack of cigarettes than to puff your way through a jewel pod, even though you're getting the same amount of addictive chemicals in your body. They're worried that those decreasing rates of nicotine-addicted smokers might pop back up, and all the health gains made over the past few decades might collapse because of this very well-marketed, very well-designed product peddled by people who seem to understand, just like these sugary cereal and fast food companies before them, that if you can get your customers when they're young, you can catch them at a time where they are more naive and impressionable and prone to casual addictions, and you'll be more likely to capture them as customers for life. And there's a lot of money to be made if you can get someone chemically hooked on your product in their teenage years. Whether your product is nicotine or soft drinks, right before they go off into the world to make more money, some of which will continue to land in your coffers if you play your cards right. Now all that said, the article that I'd like to unspool today comes from the Washington Post, and it's entitled, The Vaping Industry Has Close Ties to Trump. His ban still caught them off guard. The opening paragraphs of this piece introduce its thesis statement pretty well, I think. Quote, Jewel Labs did everything in the power player's handbook to cement its status in Washington. The Silicon Valley startup worked to make friends in the nation's capital. It hired senior White House officials, wired into President Trump and the First Family. It sent politically connected officials to the West Wing to extol its products. It spent big on lawmakers in both parties. But last week, the e-cigarette giant, along with the rest of the vaping industry, 
was caught off guard when President Trump decided to take drastic action, banning almost all flavored vaping products. We can't have our youth be so affected, he said in the Oval Office. End quote. There are a few things worth unpacking here. First, Juul Labs is not reinventing the wheel here. They're going through the same motions that the tobacco industry in particular helped innovate over the course of the 20th century, buying friends in high places who themselves have their own friends in high places, so they can gain influence over the discussion of their product when it comes time to regulate and legislate. This doesn't ensure they'll be entirely free to do whatever they like, of course, any more than it did for the tobacco industry, for the alcohol industry, for power players in most industries, really but especially those in industries that know their products cause some type of harm by default. But it does mean that they will be far more likely to escape extinction-level events and will be more likely to be able to assuage the worst non-death outcomes by obfuscating where possible, selling politicians on economic benefits whenever they can, and pitching a set of somewhat libertarian talking points when warranted so that the politicians they fund and who they influence in various other ways will have excuses for their constituents as to why they are allowing obviously harmful products onto the market and why they are not doing more to prevent the adoption of these products amongst their more youthful constituents. Which, by the way, does not mean that there are not legitimate arguments to be made here. It could be, and has been, argued that people should be able to put whatever they want in their bodies, and the government should not play a role in that decision, either by making something illegal to use or by clamping down on the availability of such products. It's also arguably the case that if you do decide it's societally beneficial to remove a harmful product from the market, it's also imperative to remove other harmful products. So if you remove cigarettes or jewel products from shelves, wouldn't you also have to remove alcoholic beverages? They're arguably just as, if not more, dangerous in some ways. And if you want to be ethically consistent, you'd probably need to go full-on Prohibition era and ban all such products. By that logic, you'd probably need to remove sugary snacks from stores as well, alongside things like lottery tickets and guns and maybe knives and other more commonly used weapons. And at a certain point, it becomes easier and perhaps even makes more sense by some logical ways of thinking to not ban anything, and to maybe just put small limits on how certain things can be sold, and then hope for the best. Now, I don't want to come down hard on one side or the other of this argument, but I do want to make clear that the system here, the system being political and economic levers and pulleys and buttons of various kinds, is being utilized by skilled utilizers to achieve the best possible outcomes for Juul. And this is not something that Juul invented, and it's not something that is illegal, but it is something that not everyone realizes is happening with these sorts of companies. But also, to varying degrees, with all companies that achieve a certain scale or have an understood regulatory component to their continued operation. Because of that intertwining with the world of politics and politicians, this story addresses the, not shock perhaps, but maybe surprise, that folks in the Juul orbit have been feeling as a result of Trump's seeming demonization of the industry, because they felt they had greased all the right palms and gotten the right influencers on their side to ensure that, all else being equal, they would be favored. They felt they'd made it clear that they were willing to play ball and support the right people, and in this case, reciprocal support from the other side was lacking. 
Another component of this story is the fact that action is being taken, or seems likely to be taken, in the first place. Juul and other e-cigarette and vaporizer manufacturers and purveyors have long known that their industry straddles the line between socially acceptable and not okay, in a similar fashion to the marijuana industry. And in fact, there's a great deal of overlap between the two, as many such devices allow for the consumption of marijuana-based products as well as tobacco and other nicotine-based products. But it did seem for a while there that the momentum of history was on their side, as more and more regions around the world have legalized the use of marijuana to varying degrees, and these beautified, higher-end e-cigarettes continued to increase their market share, predicated on the argument that they were actually good for health outcomes, because they could help people stop smoking, a claim that's almost certainly true to some degree, though it's not yet clear whether the downsides of easy-to-consume nicotine and the preponderance of teens and other young people who are taking up ingesting it, despite not having been smokers beforehand, cancels out the ostensible benefits of that trade-off. That said, valuation for these companies were rising, 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 and it's become increasingly common to see people of all ages and demographics pulling out their little USB stick-looking devices to take puffs throughout the day. Ubiquity and social acceptability seemed all but certain. But then, quite suddenly, everything seemed to go sideways. It's only been a few months, as of the day I'm recording this, in late September 2019, since the first confirmed e-cigarette-related death was announced. Soon after, another half-dozen deaths were tied to the devices, and thousands of hospital visits have been reported around the world, all linked to the consumption of chemicals using these devices. This month in the United States, the Center for Disease Control put out a report indicating that they'd been conducting a probe into the industry and into these products, and the CDC discovered through this probe that at least 530 people in 38 states had been afflicted by a lung illness that has not yet been fully identified or remedied. The FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, was working in parallel with the CDC to figure out what's been causing all these illnesses, and the commonality between them was the use of e-cigarette devices, some with nicotine, some with THC-based substances, so marijuana-related chemicals, and some who used the devices to ingest both. There are currently several theories about what might be going on here and why so many people are being hospitalized for a condition that they haven't yet been able to identify or consistently treat. One theory is that the people are being hurt by filler agents added to black market cartridges, both for the THC and the nicotine-related products. Cartridges for these devices, the pods that are required to make them work, can be expensive, so many people will refill with off-brand or refilled cartridges that save money, buying them on eBay or on the street, or through other not technically legal but not exactly illegal dealers. These dealers, though, or whomever they get their product from, will use some of the same substances found in the official pods but will then cut in other chemicals meant to fill up the pod on the cheap, or in an attempt to get a similar consistency as the real deal but not knowing the precise formula that the brands use to do so. And if they get that formula even a little bit wrong using these types of chemicals, that can mean a great deal of damage to their customers' organs, even if they only caused that damage out of ignorance rather than malice. Another theory is that people are just taking in crazy amounts of nicotine, and because taking in the same amount via other methods, like traditional cigarettes, would be very difficult, you'd need to smoke several packs a day to achieve the same level of ingestion that some people are getting every day via these pods, 
We're only just now beginning to see the consequences of an addictive chemical with lots of other properties being overindulged in to that degree, leading to, at times, potentially devastating outcomes. One more theory is that the nature of these devices themselves are the culprit. That, because these aerosolized substances are heated to higher temperatures than you would find in cigarettes and pipes and other such products, the lungs of users are being affected, and these substances are able to make their way through semi-permeable surfaces that are heated up in this way into parts of the body where they should not be. Which in practice means that these chemicals, which probably would be relatively non-harmful if they stayed where they were supposed to be, are not staying where they're supposed to be because of the heat involved, or maybe because of the heat plus the way the chemicals are being aerosolized. And those chemicals getting elsewhere in the body is severely messing with some people's lungs and other organs, potentially. I suspect, in the relatively near future, we will know a great deal more about this facet of the story. There are enough medical and health organizations around the world working on this issue that we're bound to see results, maybe even before the end of 2019, that shine a light on what's happening to people who are using these products. And I suspect we will have a better notion of the numbers involved as well at that point. It's assumed that the number of people who are reported to have these conditions today are just a small sample of a much larger population of people who, for many reasons, are not getting help, or who are being treated for other things and thus are not being lumped in with this larger collection of people quite yet, because we do not have a strict definition of what this group is suffering from at the moment. So many organizations worldwide are expending resources on this question of what's happening, though, in part because this category of products are very quickly becoming the new boogeyman for politicians around the world. Several states in the United States have already banned non-tobacco-flavored pods, indicating that they believe that other flavors are making children into users, and perhaps are even meant to make children into users. As mentioned in that Washington Post piece, it's possible that the federal government of the United States will lay down a similar law. Though since that piece was published, Trump has backpedaled on his language a bit, maybe because of pressure from this industry and their lobbyists, maybe just to test the waters to see which position is more likely to get him re-elected in 2020. Maybe because that's just something that he does sometimes. So there's a chance that this ban will become more expansive and more comprehensive in the United States soon. But at the moment, the state-level pushes are more likely to move forward, as stated, I think. Elsewhere, though, too, we're seeing bans or partial bans on these products. India's government recently announced a full-on ban on e-cigarettes, citing health concerns related to the products, especially among young people. This ban applies to the production, manufacturing, import, export, transport, sale, distribution, storage, and advertising of e-cigarettes in the country. And the government has said that although the companies have positioned themselves as selling products that will wean smokers off cigarettes, what they're really doing is introducing a new vector through which they can hook young people on nicotine, which will then turn them into addicted customers for life. In India, and in other countries that have announced or alluded to potential announcements about such bans, critics of these bans have said that it's strange that the governments are banning this product, but allowing cigarettes and other traditional tobacco-based products to be sold. That perhaps this is a move provoked not by true health concerns, but rather by the more entrenched lobbyists, from other corners of the nicotine distribution industries who do not want this new, wildly successful product 
infringing upon their turf. The same might be true in other countries like the United States, where cigarettes are regulated but not banned in the way that flavored e-cigarette pods might soon be banned. At the moment, the future of this industry is in flux, though not yet fatally harmed or threatened. It's absolutely possible that Big Tobacco's playbook will work once more, and all Juul and similar players need to do is find the right levers, find the right people in the right positions of power to support them, and or the right language to use to justify their existence, and their protection from harmful regulations, bans, and litigation. It may be that this segment of the nicotine delivery and THC ingestion industry is too flashy, too public, and too appealing to teenagers to survive the current political and regulatory moment. That maybe they flew a little too close to the sun and didn't have all their legal ducks in a row before getting that kind of mainstream attention. It could be that they are hobbled or pulled apart, even as other aspects of the industry, like cigarettes, chewing tobacco, and the like, continue to be sold. Because those other entities got there first, and their expansion efforts in highly populous and increasingly spendy nations like China, India, and Nigeria have allowed them to build up a war chest, expansive enough that they can defend their borders against both undesirable politics and undesirable infringers upon their incumbency. It may also be that we discover that this current moment of panic is just that, a moral panic little different from the panic about rock and roll or Dungeons and Dragons in prior decades. It's not impossible that we come to realize that such devices actually do work as advertised, and that with a tweak of the chemical composition or a stricter set of laws about refilling pods or selling off-brand pods on the street or via eBay, we can get all the benefits without most of the downsides. We can keep kids from being as drawn in by the brand or at the very least less able to get their hands on such devices or the pods that are required to use them. And smokers can benefit from fewer carcinogens in their body, still addicted to nicotine perhaps, but less likely to get cancer and other ailments from tobacco, which isn't ideal maybe, but also isn't nothing. I'll be interested to see how Juul and other brands in this space respond to this new push against their expansion especially since they've grown sufficiently large to launch their own counterattack, perhaps aiming at politicians who are pushing for regulations and bans, perhaps adjusting their marketing and overall aesthetic to show that they are willing to tweak their method and be less appealing to teenagers, or perhaps focusing more of their attention on the individual sovereignty angle that worked so well for tobacco companies in the past. The argument that I can do whatever I want with my body and any attempt to limit my ability to do that is inherently, philosophically wrong, whatever the consequences might turn out to be. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called Flash Boys by Michael Lewis. Michael Lewis is an author who's had a series of very well-written, very successful books. A couple of them have been turned into movies already. You might recognize Moneyball and The Big Short. And this book is along those same lines in the sense that it takes a non-fiction concept and turns it into a story that in some ways is stranger than fiction, in part because of the way that it's told and in part because of the topic at hand. Flash Boys, like The Big Short, is about economics, it's about trading, but in this case, rather than being about the events that led up to the 2008 financial collapse, it's about the development and advent and repercussions of the introduction of high-frequency trading in the stock market. 
and how it completely changed the dynamics of investing and how it slanted the entire industry in favor of people who could get certain types of infrastructure on their side. If any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Flash Boys by Michael Lewis. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I am at Colin is my name. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.